Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light, now in the time of this mortal life, in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. Through him who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. Welcome back uh, on this seasonably cool day. Somebody else was complaining about it. I said, I'm not complaining. Um, as a Pennsylvanian, this is about as close as I'm probably going to get to a white Christmas. At least it feels a little bit like that. So I'm not complaining about the weather. We are in Acts chapter 18 today, beginning at verse 18, and finishing out this chapter. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open to Acts chapter 18 and following. And let's just go ahead and read through the verses, and then we'll come back and take a closer look. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the disciples, or the brothers, and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila at Sancria. He had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went on from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus." When Paul first started off on this second missionary journey, well, we noted the fact that it had been his intention to sort of follow the main Roman road across, eventually reaching into what is the province of Asia or Asia Minor. Uh, that had been Paul's intention uh, to go to the city of Ephesus. But you may recall that we said that he was prevented from doing that. It had been his desire to go to Ephesus, but God had prevented him the Holy Spirit forbade it, and so what Paul tried to do was then to swing north and sort of double back through the area of Bithynia, and we're told that the Spirit of Jesus prevented him from doing that as well. So that the only thing that Paul could do was to sort of press on between these two forbidden territories until he came to the coast. And it was there that he had that vision of a man from Macedonia who said, come over and help us. And we're told that Paul at that point crossed the Hellespont and went into Europe. And he went down and he, of course, went to Philippi and to Athens and to places like that. 
And we noted in our study of that section that there are times in the Christian life when God leads us, but He leads us by means of closed doors. Sometimes we're seeking God's will, uh, we're looking for a way, for direction, for guidance, and sometimes God gives us that guidance or He gives us that direction by closing off things. Now we said that could be very frustrating at times, because we don't like closed doors. Uh, oftentimes we think we know what is best for us. We may pray on Sunday, Thy will be done, O Lord, but what we really mean is, My will be done, O Lord. But sometimes that's not what God does. There's an old country western song that says, Thank God for unanswered prayers. Well, what I will tell you is that God always answers prayers. He just doesn't always answer them the way that we would hope. Sometimes He says yes, Sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says later. Well, that's one of the wonderful things about the Christian life. Sometimes God closes doors, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those doors are closed forever. And that is exactly what we see happening here in Acts chapter 18. When Paul set off on this second missionary journey, the door to Ephesus was closed to him. He had a desire to go there, and we'll talk about why he wanted to go to Ephesus. Ephesus was a very significant city, strategically located, like some of the others that Paul had visited. But God had closed the door. But now when we get here to Acts chapter 18, what happens is that God opens the door to Ephesus. Now I want to point out to you here in these verses, 18 through 22 of Acts chapter 18, we have one of the other turning points in the narrative. We said that there have been many turning points in the book of Acts, and this is certainly one of them. This is very significant. Uh, it's been confusing over the years, especially to Sunday school teachers who've tried to teach their students the missionary journeys of Paul. Because what Paul does here in Acts chapter 18 is he sort of blends together the ending of the second missionary journey and the beginning of the third missionary journey. We know that Paul went on three missionary journeys that he had planned. He went on four journeys, if you take a look at the journey that he made to Rome that was not planned, but God nevertheless used. But Paul set out on three planned journeys, and we have already seen the first one. It's pretty easy to see where the first missionary journey begins and where it ends. Uh, it begins in Acts chapter 13 in that remarkable church in Antioch. And we're told that what had happened was that while the church was praying and fasting, seeking God's will, the Holy Spirit spoke to the believers and said what? Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. And we know that they laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them off. And that first missionary journey was a relatively brief one compared to some of these others. They traveled through a relatively small region. They went down the coast from Antioch, took a boat over to Cyprus, preached around the Isle of Cyprus, then went back up to the continent, went to Pisidian Antioch, to Iconium, to Lystra, and to Derbe. And then when they had finished visiting those three cities, they doubled back, came back through those areas, and reported back to the church in Antioch. And that was the end of the first missionary journey, which was then followed by the first church council. And that whole debate about whether or not Gentiles, in order to become Christians, had to first become Jews. Remember that? Well, it's very easy to see the beginning and the end of the first missionary journey. 
It's also very easy to see the beginning of the second missionary journey. We're told that after the church council in Jerusalem, they went back to Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, and they decided that they were going to send off, set off on another missionary journey, going back through the same towns that they had visited on the first journey. But there had been that dispute between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. You recall that Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on the journey with them, but Paul did not. Paul was upset about the fact that John Mark had deserted them on the first missionary journey, and so there was this rupture in their relationship. And what happened was that Barnabas took his nephew with him, or his relative with him, John Mark, and they went down to Cyprus, and Paul took somebody else with him. He took Silas with him, and they went back through some of those regions, back through some of those cities like Lystra. They picked up Timothy, for example, and then they pressed on. And as I said, Paul wanted to initially head off to Ephesus, but he was forbidden from doing so. So that was the beginning of the second missionary journey. But where does the second missionary journey end and the third one begin? Right here in these verses. So listen to them carefully again. After this, well, after this, what does that mean? After Paul had been in Corinth, all right, Paul was in Corinth here in verse 18. He stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Now, we've already been introduced to them. We'll come back to them in a moment. At Sancria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now, what does that mean? Well, it was probably a case where he took a vow and as a sign of that, he cut his hair. It was a vow of thanks most likely in this particular instance. Uh, Paul was giving thanks for the success that he had experienced in Corinth up to this point. And look at verse 19, and they came to Ephesus. So remember, Ephesus had been closed off to Paul at the beginning of this journey. Now he's approaching it from the west, and it is open to him. And he left his companions there, but he himself went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. Now, that was the same custom that Paul had always employed when he went into a new place. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. He declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And it says he set sail from Ephesus. Where did he go? When he had landed at Caesarea. How many of you went on the journey with me this past spring, you went to the Caesarea that's being mentioned here. There were a number of Caesareas in the ancient world. This is Caesarea Maritima. This is where Paul would eventually be imprisoned for nearly three years after he'd been arrested in Jerusalem. So this is where he went. It was a major port city. It was the headquarters of the Roman province in that area. So for those of you who have been to Caesarea Maritima, this is the Caesarea that's being referred to here. And we're told that he went up and greeted the church. Went up. What is that a reference to? Jerusalem. Uh, to Jews, you always go up to Jerusalem. Doesn't matter where you're coming from. You may be coming from the north, the south, the east, or the west. But when you go to Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. Now, you always go up to Jerusalem because there is a sense in which it sits on a high plateau. If you've been to the Temple Mount, you can see that. But it was also because Jerusalem had great symbolic significance. Uh, to the Jews, it was the highest place in the world. And so when Luke says, Paul landed at Caesarea Maritima, and then he went to Jerusalem, 
Actually, he went south, but he went up to Jerusalem and he greeted the church. Paul recognized, even though he was an apostle, he was still under authority. It's very important for us, I think, in Christian life. No man is an island unto himself, and no man is the master of his own fate or the captain of his own destiny, regardless of what the old poem Invicta says. We are all under authority, and Paul, even the great apostle, was not an authority unto himself. He was under the authority of the church. And so we're told he went up and he greeted the church, and after that he went down to Antioch. That was the church that had sent him out. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is the end of the second missionary journey. When Paul departs Ephesus, after that initial point of contact, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time there. We're told he goes in and he reasons with the, Jeru the Jews in the synagogue. And then he did what? He set sail from Ephesus and he came to Caesarea Maritima, went up to Jerusalem, greeted the church, and from there went down to Antioch. That's the end of the second missionary journey. And it's the beginning of the third missionary journey. Because we read in chapter 19 that Paul does what? He goes back to Ephesus. He had promised them when they said, stay with us longer, he would come back to them if God willed. Paul was learning, wasn't he? He had desired initially to go to Ephesus, and God had shut the door. But now God had opened the door, and he said, if it remains open, I will return to you. And so he came back. I think it's interesting that Paul sort of blends these two journeys together. Why does he do that? It's very clear where the first journey begins and where the, the, the journey ends. Why in the world does Luke sort of blend these two together in his narrative? He shows us very clearly where the second journey begins, but this second and third journey, the beginning of the third, the ending of the second, are sort of blended together here in Acts chapter 18. I'll tell you why I think that is. I think because from this point on, his focus is going to be Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He's, he's less concerned with delineating the place or the journeys themselves. And he's more concerned with the places, the cities in particular. But I want you to notice that this does mark the beginning of the third missionary journey, a missionary journey that will end in Acts chapter 21 when Paul is ultimately arrested in Jerusalem. So that's the first thing I want you to notice. We're going to have a new region a new area where Paul is going to go and preach the gospel. Second thing I want you to notice about this transition section is that not only is Paul going to new areas to preach the gospel, he also has new laborers, new helpers along the way. Who are these new helpers? Um, well, the first group, and it's really a group because it's a couple, are Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, this simply reminds us that God's work never lacks for God's provision. I've already pointed out to you that when Paul went someplace by himself, he never stayed by himself for very long before God sent more laborers to assist him. At one point, he left his companions in Macedonia, and Paul went on, and we're told that after that had happened, they came and they assisted him. He'd become very lonely, very discouraged by the work, by the lack of productivity in terms of people converting to the faith. And so what happens is that Paul eventually 
eventually asks for more laborers to come, and God always sent him new laborers. Well, we see this as he heads into this new area. God is going to provide him with new assistance as well. The Christian life is not meant to be done in isolation. We need each other. And this is particularly true if we have a mission mindset. It's not only true in just sort of making it through life as a believer, it's also true especially if we're going to make a difference in the world for the sake of Christ. And so we see that as Paul headed off on this new missionary journey, God provided for him laborers. So just think about it for a moment. On that first missionary journey, God provided a laborer. Barnabas went with him. Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas, and the two of them went together. On the second missionary journey, when Paul and Barnabas had that disagreement and they parted company, Paul did not go by himself. God raised up somebody else, Silas, and even added to the company of disciples as the journey went on because we're told Timothy, this convert from Lystra, whose mother was a Jewess and whose father was Greek, he joined them. God was always providing what Paul needed, not only in terms of financial assistance, but also in terms of the laborers in the field. And we see that here. We meet two more laborers, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, who are Priscilla and Aquila? Well, we've already seen in Acts chapter 18, at the beginning of the chapter, that Paul had met them when he was in Corinth. They were Jews, but they were from Rome. In fact, Paul's going to mention them later when he writes his epistle to the Roman church. So they were a husband and wife. They were from Rome. They had fled Rome because of an edict from the emperor Claudius. This is very interesting, um, just in terms of secular history. Uh, we know that the emperor Claudius, sometime around the year 49 AD, expelled all the Jews from Rome. And the historian Suetonius, the Roman historian Suetonius said that it had to do with an uprising concerning a Jew named Crestus. Crestus. Now, most scholars believe that what Suetonius was referring to was really Christ. He probably got the name wrong. But at some time around the year 49 AD, there was an uprising in Jerusalem, a dispute among the Jews themselves over a person by the name of Crestus, or Christ, which tells us that the gospel had already reached Rome by the year 49 AD. Jesus probably was crucified and resurrected sometime around the year 33 AD. So 16 years later, what? The gospel has reached Rome, and to such a degree that it's caused a division within the Jewish community. Some receiving the message of Christ, some rejecting. This is one of the um, most important secular references to Jesus. It's not a reference you see in sacred scriptures. It's a reference in secular history to the impact that Christ was already beginning to have at this early stage upon the Roman Empire. So it's very important. And as a result of this dispute, we're told the Emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome. And it was at this point, we're told, that Priscilla and Aquila left the imperial capital and they came to Corinth. And it was here that they met Paul. Now, when Paul arrived in Corinth, we said that um, he had pretty much run out of money. And so he had to work with his hands and he met this couple and they were tent makers. What was Paul? Paul was a tent maker as well. 
And so he went into their house and he stayed with them and he worked with them. And then when he had free time, he would go out and he would preach the gospel and try to convert the Corinthians. But this couple was very instrumental in assisting Paul in his work. They were tent makers, which meant that they worked with hides. That tells us that they were probably not uh, of the upper class. They were probably just manual laborers, just regular folk. But they were people who had great concern for Paul, and they accepted his message with joy. One other thing we could say about Priscilla and Aquila was that they were mission-minded. They had a heart for the lost. Because when Paul, in Ephesus, would write his first letter to the Corinthians, one of the things that he would say was that they were to greet Priscilla and Aquila and the church that was meeting in their house. Of course, you have to remember that in the early days, churches were not buildings like this magnificent structure behind me. They were not what we would call a church proper. The church was the gathering of God's people. That's the church. Uh, It's unfortunate, but we have sort of corrupted the biblical understanding of what it means to be church. What does the word church mean? Ecclesia. Anybody know? Ryan, what does that word mean? Ecclesia. It means church, but what does that word specifically mean? Anybody? An assembly, or called out ones, basically, is what it means. And so the church are those who have been called out from the world to be an assembly, a, a different group, a different body. It's not bricks, mortar, and stone, contrary to what we think. That's why I've always said that, God forbid, St. Philip should have another fire and the building burned down, the next day, the church is still there. Church has not disappeared. Now, the place where the church gathers, where the church meets, that may be gone, but the church itself is still very much alive. And we're told that the church that met in Corinth, when Paul left there, assembled where? At the home of Priscilla and Aquila. So that tells us they were mission-minded. They had a heart for the church. They wanted to do everything in their power to support. You know, there are two types of people in the church. There are pillars of the church, those people who support from the inside, and then there are flying buttresses. You know, those are the people that support from the outside, so to speak. Well, these were pillars of the church. They were there and they were doing everything in their power. So we know that they had a mission mindset. They were also sacrificial givers. And we know that why. Well, we know that because when Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans and he said, greet Priscilla and Aquila, one of the things that he mentions was that they risked their life for him. Now, we don't have any more details about that. We don't know exactly how it was that they risked their life for Paul. It must have happened probably when they were in Corinth. But Paul never forgot it. And he regarded them as dear friends, as companions along the way. And they were Paul's brethren. It's very interesting to note that on one occasion, Jesus was teaching, and somebody came up to him and they said, your mother and your sisters and your family are outside waiting for you. They want to talk to you. And do you remember what Jesus said on that occasion? He said, who are my mother? Who's my mother? Who's my brother? Who's my sister? He said, look around you. He points to the audience, to the people to whom he's speaking. He said, these 
are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters and my family. When we were first married, Kristen and I, um, it was hard. You know, when you're a clergyman, a lot of times your family will say to you, are you coming home for Christmas? Sort of forgetting that, you know, that's kind of a busy work day for us as clergy. And uh, same thing for Easter. Are you coming home for Easter? No, not coming home for Easter. Kind of going to be busy on Easter morning as well. And, uh, well, how about Thanksgiving? Uh, well, no, no, we got a service here on Thanksgiving as well. Halloween, well, we might be able to swing that one, but, you know, I mean, but there's just a real sense in which family, at least when we were first married, really didn't understand that you can't go home. And I admit, when I was first ordained and I was here and Kristen and I were not yet married, in fact, I hadn't, I just met her, I, I was here on Christmas all by myself. Everybody had family to go to and so forth. And I was a, a young clergyman, 24 years old, with no place to go. It was kind of lonely. You know, kind of get up and watch the parade. <laughs> and open the stale fruit cake that Mother sent you, you know, sort of have a slice of that and a little bit of eggnog and cry into your eggnog a little bit, you know, it's kind of sad. But as time went by and you grow and you mature and you get to know people, it was really remarkable. I remember one Christmas Eve, missing my family, and as I was coming down the altar rail, handing out the communion, and looking at the people as they looked up and smiled at me and I smiled at them, and it suddenly dawned on me. The Lord just spoke to me and he said, this is your family. You were missing family. This, this is your family. And look at how many brothers and sisters and, oh, yes, mothers. Mothers who want to take care of you and get you hooked up with a young woman because you were single at that particular moment. And they, they want to make sure that they, you know, they've got willing granddaughters and they'd love to see their granddaughters and their daughters married off to a clergyman. They think that's a good thing. And it just dawned on me, this is my mother. This is my brothers. These are my family. That's what the church is meant to be. It's not bricks, mortar, and stone. It's a gathering of people. What would St. Philip's be if all the people that you know and you love were no longer there? It would not be the same. The only thing you'd be left with is what? Memories. <laughs> Memories. Well, we find that Paul was lonely at times, but God provided for him. And Priscilla and Aquila became his family. So as Paul heads off on this third missionary journey, we're told that he is provided with companions along the way. But it's not just Priscilla and Aquila, because we're told that there was somebody else that was provided. Look at verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, who's this new companion, this new laborer in the field who's going to make such a profound impact for the cause of Christ in Ephesus and elsewhere? Well, Apollos couldn't have been more different from Priscilla and Aquila if he tried. They were what? They were Jews. What do we know about Apollos? Well, we know by his name, from everything else, that he was a Greek. He was a Gentile. He was a convert to Judaism, perhaps, but his name indicates to us that he was not Jewish. Not by birth, anyway. 
Furthermore, he appears to be single. They were a married couple. He was from Alexandria, and we're told he was extremely learned. He was a learned man, competent in the Scripture, instructed in the way of the Lord. Alexandria was the great center of learning in the ancient world. Now, we've already talked about Athens, and we said that when Paul went to Athens, Athens was in the late afternoon of her glory, but she was still a great city, the kind of city that Paul would have looked forward to going to. It was uh, the city where, of course, Socrates and Plato had once been active. It was a place of art and literature. It was a remarkable place. But I said by the time Paul got there, it really was sort of just a shadow of her former greatness. The people that were active, the philosophers that were active, the, the Epicureans and the Stoics who were apt, active in Athens at the time that Paul got there in the first century were really just imitators of the giants who'd gone before. That was not true in Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria was a really great university and intellectual center in the ancient world, the greatest. It surpassed even Athens. So I said when Paul first went to Athens, he sort of went like a man who's from Harvard visiting Oxford. Well, I need to back up and sort of change that a little bit. Paul was like a man from Notre Dame going to visit Harvard. And if he had gone to Alexandria, it would have been like a man from Notre Dame going to visit Oxford. Alexandria was a great center for learning. It was also the headquarters of a famous Jewish philosopher by the name of Philo. Philo was a Jew. He was trained in the Jewish scriptures, but he was a Hellenist, which means that he was Jewish, but he acted and he thought in terms of Greek philosophical concepts. So he would interpret, he believed in the Old Testament scriptures, but he interpreted them in the light of Greek philosophical thought. So many people believe that the term logos, for instance, that is employed in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Many people believe that Philo was the person who sort of brought those ideas together, that Greek philosophical notion of the Word that brings order to the universe and then applies it to God. Many people think that those who wrote the Gospel of John, that sort of nonconformist community of Jews south of Jerusalem, probably learned that way of thinking from people like Philo. So Philo was headquartered in Alexandria. If Apollos was a Greek who had converted to Judaism, chances are he had been trained under somebody like Philo. So we're talking about a brilliant, educated man. This is a man who probably would have had what we call a college education and had done graduate work as well. And here he is. He's come to Ephesus. We're told that he had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. What does that mean? Well, it means he had a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament, not the New Testament. Remember, the New Testament scriptures are just being written. Paul had the earliest of the New Testament writings are not the Gospels. Here's a little bit of trivia for you. The earliest Christian writings, regardless of the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come first in the New Testament, are not the oldest books of the New Testament. The oldest books of the New Testament are the writings of Paul. Well, Paul's at this point just in the process of writing them. So when it says that this man Apollos was competent in the Scriptures, what it really means 
is that he understood the Old Testament scriptures. He knew them well, backwards and forwards. He was competent in the scriptures. He was instructed, we're told, in the way of the Lord, which meant that he understood. Now, Lord here, I want to come back to that in a little bit, but in the way of the Lord, which means he understood the things of the people of God. Furthermore, we're told that he was sincere. He was sincere. Now, that word sincere is not used. Instead, the word is fervent. He was fervent in spirit. We're told that he was able to handle the scriptures. He was able to teach the scriptures. He was able to do that in a compelling way. And it's not surprising because after all, he was a what? He was a Greek. He was a learned man. So he understood all of the, the, the ways that the Greeks would present. The Greeks were great orators. They were great thespians and actors and public speakers, and they knew how to present an argument and how to prepare an address to a congregation. You know, this was true in the 19th century, before television, before the advent of television and radio and that sort of thing. You know what people did for entertainment? They went to hear public speakers. They went to hear people like Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln, the stump speakers that were making their way. And even better, if you could make it to Washington, D.C., you could hear people like Daniel Webster and Henry Clay and John C. Calhoun. Can't forget him, of course. That's what people did. Do you know the most famous speech in American history is probably the what? Probably the Gettysburg Address. Probably the, the most famous speech in American history is the Gettysburg Address. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln was not chosen to be the primary speaker for that occasion? He was invited as an afterthought. The primary, he was not the main speaker for the occasion. The main speaker for the occasion was a man by the name of Edward Everett, the former president of Harvard, because he was a renowned public speaker. When they decided that they were going to dedicate a national cemetery, somebody thought, well, we probably ought to invite the chief magistrate or executive of the nation. And so they invited Abraham Lincoln as an afterthought. Lincoln spoke for two and a half minutes. Edward Everett spoke without notes for two and a half hours. <laughs> and the people were enthralled the whole time. And yet when Lincoln finished his speech, Edward Everett was the first to recognize its greatness. And he went up and he took Lincoln by the hand and he said, I would flatter myself if I thought I had come as close to the sentiment of the occasion in two and a half hours as you came in just two minutes. But that's what people did in the ancient world, you see. They, they came to hear public speakers, and Apollos was a great one. But this was not just an exercise on Apollos' part. This was not just an example of his ability. He believed this. You know, you can tell the difference between a preacher who's very eloquent and knows how to present an argument and is very entertaining and very engaging and someone who actually believes it. You can tell the difference. And a lot of the time it has to do with what? Fervency. Well, Apollos was fervent in spirit. He was sincere. And we're told in Acts chapter 18, verse 25, he taught about Jesus accurately. So he was gifted as an orator, he was fervent in spirit, he really believed this, and he was accurate. Now all of that is to his credit. 
This is a remarkable young man. But he had one liability. What was it? He knew only the baptism of John. Now, what does it mean he only knew the baptism of John? Well, of course, this is a reference to the baptism of John the Baptist. You know, as far as we know, Jesus never really baptized anybody. John was the baptizer. The other disciples would baptize. Jesus' final words to his disciples before he ascended was, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So it was the responsibility of the disciples to baptize. But as far as we know, Jesus didn't do too much of that. John the Baptist was the baptizer. And when he baptized, he baptized for what? Do you remember your New Testament? For repentance. For repentance. So when it says that Apollos had all of this going for him, but he only had the baptism of John, what does that mean? Well, it can mean one of two things. It means that, number one, he had only been baptized for repentance and had never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've seen on other occasions what would happen is that people would believe, they would confess their sins, but they had never actually received the gift of the Holy Spirit. The new birth. Remember what Jesus had said to Nicodemus? Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Born again how? Jesus said, by the power of the Holy Spirit. For the wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So it may very well have been the case that this was a young man who had been trained in the Scriptures. He had repented of his sins, but he still had not received the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a possibility. The other possibility is this. He knew about Jesus but he really didn't know Jesus yet. And by that I don't mean that he was one of those people that, that is very knowledgeable in terms of the things of the faith, but has never really had an active faith. I'm, I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm suggesting to you that this was a man who was trained in the Old Testament scriptures. He believed that the Messiah was coming, and that when the Messiah came, he would do a whole host of things. Establish his kingdom, for instance. But he did not know, at this point at least, that the Messiah had arrived. In other words, he knew what John had taught. Isn't that what John the Baptist had said in the wilderness? Keep your finger there in Acts and turn, if you will, for just a moment to John. John chapter 1. And look at how the Gospel of John begins. And, and by the way, since we're in Advent, it's interesting to note that all four of the Gospels begin differently. They don't all tell the story of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Did you know that? Only Matthew and Luke tell the story of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Mark's Gospel begins not with Jesus' birth, but with the beginning of his public ministry. And John's Gospel goes back far before Bethlehem, to the pre-existent Logos who becomes flesh. So all four of the Gospels begin in a slightly different way, but there is one point where they all come together, where the narratives converge, and that is at the person and the work and the ministry of John the Baptist. Jesus said, of all the men born of women, no one has ever been greater than John the Baptist, which is really remarkable because John doesn't appear for very long in the New Testament narrative, but he was the greatest 
And he is a crucial figure in the coming of the Messiah. Well, look at John chapter 1, verses 19 and following. And this was the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, what does the word Christ mean? Anybody know? Anointed one. The anointed one. So he's saying, I am not the anointed one. I am not the promised Savior. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and so they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. The things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. John admits, I didn't know him. I knew he was coming. I knew what he was going to do, but I didn't know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the, the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, it is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So what was the case with Apollos? He had probably been a disciple or a devotee to some degree of John the Baptist. Not that he had actually seen John, but he had heard the message of John and had traveled throughout the region. He knew that the Christ was coming. John had been talking about that. Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. There is one coming after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I baptize you with water. But when he arrives, whoever he is, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Apollos had heard that message and he had believed it. But he had not been there when John said, Behold, there he is. And so Apollos was this man, very eloquent, very gifted. He comes here to Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila listen to him. They're impressed by him, but they recognize that even though he's got all of these things going for him, there is one problem. He doesn't know that the Messiah that he's proclaiming has actually arrived. And so they decide that they've got to do what? They've got to share the message of Jesus. The one you're looking for, the one you're waiting for, the one you're proclaiming, guess what? He's already come. And that's what they do. They decided that they were going to share with him the message. Go back now to Acts, and you can see how this plays out. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught according to the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
I think that's remarkable. I think it's really remarkable because here were Priscilla and Aquila, uneducated, untrained individuals, common folk, a husband and a wife. And here's Apollos, as different from them as he could possibly be. Young, single, extremely intelligent, articulate, nothing like them, and yet they recognize that they have something to offer him that he does not have. How do you educate the learned? How, how do you educate learned people who simply do not have the gospel? They've got a lot of other things, but they don't have the gospel. You know, I pointed out when we finished our study of Athens that that can be very difficult. It can be very difficult to educate learned, intelligent people. Why? Because they think they have all the answers. And from all that the Scripture indicates, Paul, when he left Athens, he was discouraged. We're told that the results of his work, his labors there in that place were meager, to say the least. When he arrived in Corinth, he was discouraged. It is hard to educate the intellectual. But Priscilla and Aquila did it, and it bore great fruit for the kingdom. How do you do that? I want to suggest to you two things. First of all, when you see an intellectual person and you recognize that they have great gifts, and you recognize that if those gifts could be brought to bear in the service of the kingdom of God, you need to respect those gifts. Sometimes we get very jealous of people that are bright, that are gifted. But we just have to remember that those gifts come from God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, down from the Father of lights. And so God gave them that intellect. Furthermore, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. And the thought is that if that giftedness, that intellect could be brought to bear in the service of the kingdom of God, what a difference it could make. You know, where would the world be if somebody hadn't recognized the intellect of C.S. Lewis and what a difference it would make if he was actually converted to the Christian faith? How many of you have had a profound impact? Brian, don't answer this. We all know you. But how many of you have been deeply, <laughs> deeply impacted by the ministry of C.S. Lewis over the course of your lives? Well, what if somebody had simply said, oh, I'm not going to try to convert that person. He thinks he knows all the answers. You need to respect that intellect. Now, when I say respect it, that doesn't mean you're overawed by it. Don't be overawed by that brilliance. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But respect them and befriend them. If you think about it, that's what Priscilla and Aquila did. You, you can see how it happens. We're told that they took him home to dinner. They went and heard him. You can almost imagine that they heard him speaking, just like I'm speaking to you today. And when they were finished, they came up to him and they said, listen, that was fantastic. Man, you know the scriptures backward and forward. We were so, my wife and I, we were just so blessed by that. Can we take you to dinner? Young man thinking to himself, well, don't have any plans. Sure, I'll, I'll come to dinner with you. And while they're sitting down to dinner, they again talking about these things and say, you know, that part that you were talking about with the Messiah, that, that was fantastic. My goodness, you, you gave me insight into John the Baptist's ministry that I'd never heard before. But did you know that the one you're talking about has already come? 
Did you know that we've already met him? At which point I'm sure Apollos would have said, well, gosh, is that true? And that gave them the opportunity to what? To share their faith. And what's remarkable is that this intellectual man took it humbly. He received it. It transformed his life, and as a consequence, it transformed the lives of many others. There's a great example of this from church history. There was a brilliant man at the time of the English Reformation. His name was Hugh Latimer. Now, you may have heard him because he was one of the Oxford martyrs. He was the Bishop of Worcester, and he was ultimately martyred along with Nicholas Ridley, the Bishop of London, uh, in Oxford for the Protestant faith. You recall that the two bishops were tied back to back at a stake, and they lit the fire. And it was old Hugh Latimer at that point, the end of his life, saying to the younger Nicholas Ridley, take heart, Master Ridley, as the flames were leaping up around his body, said, take heart, Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day light such a candle under England as I trust shall never be put out. They may set us ablaze, but we will set the world ablaze. And they did. So courageous. But did you know how Hugh Latimer came to faith? This man who would be so courageous and die for the sake of Christ, who would by his death, by the, the con consuming of his own body, set the, the nation ablaze. You know how he came to faith? He was a brilliant man, brilliant scholar, Oxford graduate. And there was a young man, younger than him, called Little, Little Bilney. His name was Thomas Bilney. They called him Little Bilney. It was not a compliment. It was an insult because he was a short man. They called old oh, Little Bilney. And he wasn't even a patch on Latimer's shirt in terms of his intellect. But he admired Latimer. But Latimer was not a believer. He was a priest, but he had never really understood the message of justification by grace through faith. And Bilney thought to himself, man, if Hugh Latimer could be converted to the faith, oh my goodness, what a difference it would make in England. And he thought to himself, now how am I going to get a message off to a man like Hugh Latimer? He's going to have nothing to do with me. Well, in those days, priests had to hear confessions. And so Bilney went up and tugged on Latimer's coat one day and said, I need you to hear my confession. And Latimer thought, well, all right. And so they went into the booth, closed the door, and said, all right, make your confession, little Bilney. And at that point, Bilney confessed the gospel. And Hugh Latimer heard it, and he believed. And he lit a fire under England. Who remembers little Bilney? We all remember Hugh Latimer, don't we? That's one way you begin to evangelize the learned. Respect their gifts. Recognize them. Give thanks to God that they have them. But then befriend them and share the gospel with them. Be respectful. But here's the second part. Be courageous. You know, sometimes we think to ourselves, well, <laughs> I, I can't engage in discourse with somebody like that. My goodness, they are so brilliant. They are so far over my head. You ever feel that way when you're talking to some people? How many of you have ever felt like that way? I, I could never, he's not going to listen to a word I have to say. And so we're fearful. But you needn't be fearful. Why? Because you have a wisdom that the world does not have. 
Turn to 1 Corinthians for just a moment. It's appropriate that we should go to 1 Corinthians. Why? Because Paul wrote this first letter to the church in Corinth from Ephesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's a wonderful message of encouragement to you and to me. It means that our job is to simply go out, and you've heard me say this many times before, be faithful, not successful. All we have to do is rightly handle the word of truth, and God the Holy Spirit will do the best. Let me tell you something. It doesn't matter how intellectual you may be. You cannot argue anybody into the kingdom of God. It just does not work. Because the new birth is not the work of men. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, it pleases God to work through the word that we preach. That's what Paul says there. So our job is to simply what? Share the good news and let God, the Holy Spirit, do the rest. And the power of God is capable of bringing the most intellectual person to their knees. So be courageous. Don't be afraid to share the faith. It may appear to be foolishness to the world, a stumbling block to people. But it is the wisdom of God and the power unto salvation. Reminds me of Billy Graham. Billy Graham did a crusade at Oxford University in 1980. He was invited over there by John Stott, who was the rector of All Souls Laying in Place. Now, Billy Graham, by the 1980s, had been all over the world preaching everywhere. But it was the first time that he had ever really been asked to preach a crusade at Oxford University. And Billy went there, man from North Carolina, sort of an itinerant preacher, and he was going into the center of learning, the greatest center of learning, some would say, in the Western world. And he felt that he needed to do something different than he had done in other places. And so he went in there and he wrote a totally different type of sermon, more akin to what Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens, sort of an address. And he got up there and he gave his address, and it fell flat. I mean, the response was just not what Billy had experienced in other places. And he was greatly discouraged. And he thought at first it was just, well, perhaps it was just the crowd, you know, reaching intellectuals is hard. And after it was all over, he'd always meet with his group to talk about, you know, the crusade, what they were going to do the next night. And John Stott came up to him and he said, Billy, what are you doing? And Billy said, well, I'm trying to reach these intellectuals at Oxford. And John Stott said, well, cut it out. <laughs> now, of course, he said that with an English accent, and it sounded so much nicer. 
but basically says, cut it out. Don't do that. We brought you over here to preach the gospel. Don't try to reason with these Oxford dons. Preach the gospel, Billy. Do what you do in other places. And Billy thought, well, okay. I had a warden in my last parish. He had a wonderful expression. He said, when in doubt, play your high card. Well, you know, Billy Graham's high card was what? Just preaching the gospel. The wisdom of God, which is greater than the wisdom of man. And so the next day, he got up and he just preached like Billy Graham. And they said thousands responded and gave their lives to Christ that way. See, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. So if you're going to be around intellectual people and you need to share the gospel and you feel completely ineffectual, okay, that's all right. You've got a wisdom that the world does not have. Respect their intellect. Honor it. But be courageous and share your faith. And let God worry about the rest. Well, we've already talked about John's baptism. Uh, we're told that when this happened, Apollos agreed. Is that the same? That's the same slide, didn't it? You can come back. Here are a couple of take-home points for us as we finish out today. Learning and fervor, though valuable, are not enough. You can be enthusiastic about something. You can know a great deal about it. But when it comes to a Christian witness, it's not enough. What is necessary? Well, what is necessary is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything else, everything else is secondary. Take a look at Mark chapter 8, verse 36 for just a moment. Jesus says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will ever surely find it. We place great stock in education. There's not a presidential election that goes by in this country where education is not a hot topic and a theme of the campaign promises. We love education, my friends. We think it's important. We think that if you get a college degree, it can open up all kinds of doors to people. And if you don't have a college degree, oftentimes that's going to limit you in the world today. We pride ourselves on our education. But the problem with it is the educational system, as it is currently in this nation, oftentimes pulls people away from God rather than leads them to God. Although it's interesting to note, if you were here for my Christmas Eve sermon last year, I pointed out that almost every college and university established in this nation all the great ones, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, College of William and Mary, they were all founded initially as Christian institutions. Here, here are some of the words of the founding fathers of Harvard University. This was to be that university's guiding principle. Here's what they said. 1636, Harvard College. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies 
is to know God and Jesus Christ. And to lay Christ in the bottom as the only true foundation for all sound knowledge and learning. Harvard College, 1636. What happened? That was the purpose of Harvard. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. And to lay Christ in the bottom is the only true foundation for all sound knowledge and learning. Education, fervor, intellect, they are valuable, but they're not enough. You can gain the whole world with those things and lose your soul in the process. Peter Marshall, we don't have time to talk about this today, but Peter Marshall, who was for many years the pastor of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., and who was chaplain to the U.S. Senate, husband to Catherine Marshall, the famous Christian writer, had a wonderful sermon on this. You can Google it. You can still find it out there today. It's a, it, it, it's a little, the, the recording's not great because the, the sermon was delivered in 1944. But it's a wonderful sermon. It's called Compromise in Egypt. And he's talking about when the children of Israel were led out of their captivity in Egypt, the time of the Exodus, that Pharaoh only let them go reluctantly. You'll recall that God brought all those plagues upon the Egyptians, and finally Pharaoh said, go, go, take your people and go. But then he had a change of heart, and he called Moses in, and he tried to compromise. All right, I'm going to let you go, but before you go, at least leave your herds here in Egypt. Then you can go. And you recall that Moses said, no, 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 no. We're taking our herds with us. And so Pharaoh said, well, all right. Well, then leave your possessions behind. And, uh, you know, that's a payment to us. We'll let you go. No, 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 no. And he went through all these compromises that Pharaoh wanted to make with Moses. And what a temptation it would have been to get out and to get out free. But he said the worst compromise of all, the most insidious thing that Pharaoh did was he said, all right, you go, but you leave your wives here. Moses said, no, 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 no. And then finally Pharaoh said, all right, I'll let you go, but you're going to have to leave your children here. And by the way, Moses, you should leave your children here. You're getting ready to lead them out into the wilderness. You're getting to lead them out into a place that is barren and desolate. If you want to go out there and you want to die, that's your business. But your children, look at Egypt. Look at Egypt, all that we have to offer. Leave your children here in Egypt. Let us take care of them. Let us raise them up. Let us educate them and give them all the things that the world can offer that you cannot offer them out there. Leave your children in Egypt. And Peter Marshall's point was that that is exactly what we have done. We have left our children in Egypt. We've given them everything that the world has to offer, haven't we? We've made sure that their teeth are straight. We've made sure that their spines are straight. We've made sure that they've been to the best colleges, the best universities. We make sure that when spring break comes, they go overseas to Costa Rica or they go wherever it is. We make sure that they get their Phi Beta Kappa key. We make sure that they have everything that the world has to offer, but we have left them in Egypt because we have not shown them the Lord. 
intellect, training, education, fervor. It's not enough if they don't have a relationship with Christ. That's one of the takeaway points from this. All those things Apollos had, he needed one thing more. Second point, and I'll let you go. God uses different kinds of people to do his work. If the work of God is ever going to be done and done well, if the church is ever going to grow and the gospel is ever going to spread, God's going to use different types of people to do that. Apollos was totally different from Priscilla and Aquila. And yet they were used to bring that man to faith. Little Bilney was completely different from Hugh Latimer, but he was used to bring that great man to faith. If St. Philip's or St. Michael's or First Scots or wherever you are, wherever you go to church, if your community of faith is ever going to make a difference for Jesus Christ, you've got to welcome all sorts and conditions of people into your fold. It cannot be a congregation is all made up of people like us. I'll share two brief stories with you. When I was a young curate at St. James Church on James Island, this was back in 1994, um, we had a sexton there. His name was Leonard. He has gone on to be with the Lord now. But Leonard was a, a black man, and he was there. He'd been there for years. And one day he came in, and we were just chatting, and I said, Leonard, you know, where do you go to church? And he said, oh, Jeffrey, I go to a Reformed Episcopal church. He said, oh, but our congregation is having a rough time. He said, we've really dwindled down. We only have about five people on Sunday. And he said, I think they're going to close the church. He said, and I don't know what we're going to do. And I said, well, Leonard, why don't you come here to St. James? And I'll never forget what he said. He looked at me, and he said, Jeffrey come to St. James? I said, well, yeah, Leonard, everybody knows you. He goes, I'd be like the fly in all that milk. That's what he said. I'd be like the fly in all that milk. And that broke my heart. And the other story is a man from Beaufort who eventually joined St. Helena's, but he fought it for the longest time. His wife, basically, twisted his arm, and he eventually came. Then he became very active, became a warden, all kinds of things. But I asked him at one point, I said, why was it that you didn't want to come to St. Helena's? And he said, because your church has a reputation for being the church of the rich people. Now, here was the irony. He was rich. <laughs> he was wealthy but he didn't want to be a part of a church that was known as the church of the wealthy. The church needs to be all sorts and conditions of people. It can't be all old people. It cannot be all young people. It cannot be all wealthy people. It cannot be all poor people. It cannot be all white. And it cannot be all black. If that's the kind of church you want, monolithic, you're not going to like heaven. You're not going to like it. Why? Because it is comprised of people from every language, people and nation, under heaven, praising the Lamb. 
So if that's what heaven's going to be like, we might as well get used to it on earth. And that's how God uses the church, all different kinds of people. He uses the Hugh Latimers and the Apollos's and the Pauls, but he also uses the little Bilneys and the Priscilla's and the Aquila's. And whoever you are, wherever you come from, he uses you. And that's the kind of church that changes the world and brings the nations to their knees. Let's pray for that kind of a church. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this transition in the book of Acts. As that second missionary journey ends and this new missionary journey begins, these new horizons open for Paul, a door that had been closed is open to him. But we thank you, Lord, that as the new field opens, new laborers are also provided. Lord, here at St. Philip's, St. Michael's in this diocese, it may be that a whole new field is opening to us. We pray that you would send laborers into your harvest field. Bring in those who are uneducated. Bring in those who are the PhDs. Bring in those who are poor from the streets, but rich in faith. And bring those who have everything that this world has to offer into a relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. And in the midst of it all, Use us to go out and change the city of Charleston, change the state of South Carolina, change the United States, and by consequence, as you did with those first 12 that you sent out, change the world. But we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, thank you.